Codependents are living in a fantasy world where they believe that they have this magical ability to mold or shift or manipulate the perception that others have of them, the way that others think about them. And at the end of the day, that's actually self-sabotage. Because what most of us really want in our interpersonal relationships, whether that's our romantic relationships, our family relationships, or our friendships, is to be seen and understood and loved and accepted for exactly who we are. But when we spend our time trying to manipulate the way that others see us, there's usually an element of withholding the truth that takes place that prevents others from actually being able to know us for who we are and love us for who we are in the first place. Welcome back to another episode of Talk Nerdy to Me. I'm your host, Alex Nashton, and it is the most wonderful time of the year. It's also the most codependent time of the year. It's usually around this season where we're spending a lot more time with friends, with family, with our partners, with loved ones, and anxiety tends to be running a little bit higher. As a result, so does codependency. So in today's episode of Talk Nerdy to Me, we're going to be diving into what codependency actually is, what codependency is not, some of the defining characteristics of codependent behavior, where it lives in the brain, and how to rewire yourself to become increasingly interdependent rather than codependent. This solo episode is brought to you by a lifetime of my own codependent relational patterning, my ongoing journey as a recovering codependent, and my one-on-one coaching practice, which is chock full of other codependents. As many of you know, when I started my coaching practice, I was working with people who had a lot of anxiety. The intersection between mindfulness practices and anxiety was what I spent a quarter doing independent research on when I was studying neuroscience at UCLA. And since then, I've found myself kind of falling into this really interesting niche. Most of my clients now do not necessarily have anxiety disorders, but have lives that have been dramatically impacted by the more subtle manifestations of anxiety, specifically within their romantic and interpersonal relationships. Right now, I'm supporting my clients with things like overcoming dating and relationship anxiety, building confidence and self-esteem in dating and relationships, becoming increasingly secure and less anxious in their attachment styles, and one of those very common and subtle but super impactful manifestations of anxiety within relationships is codependency. So at this point in my coaching practice, I would say about 90% of my clients have struggled with or are struggling with codependent patterns of thinking, behavior, and relating. I'll say that again. About 90% of my clients right now struggle with this. And here's the kicker. No one ever comes to coaching because they believe that they're codependent. They come because of a host of other issues that they want to work through. And when we dig a little bit deeper, it becomes very clear that codependency has some roots in whatever problem is manifesting itself in their lives and in their relationships right now. 
So here are some of the issues that my clients come to me with that are actually rooted in codependency. I want to be super clear that this list is not exhaustive. We're going to be talking about some of the characteristics of codependency later on in this episode, but I also wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page about the fact that having these issues does not mean that you are definitely codependent or that codependency is the reason why, but it might be. So let's dive in. When a lot of my clients first come to me, these are some of the issues that they're seeing in their lives. Their romantic relationship history is not great. They've historically made really bad decisions and want to become better pickers. They want to make better choices in partnership. They are embarrassed or ashamed about the way that they've let previous romantic partners treat them in relationships. They're embarrassed by what the bar or what the standard for treatment was previously. They're embarrassed or ashamed about how needy or how clingy they feel when they're in relationship. Or they are in a relationship that they know isn't right for them, but they can't seem to let go. They avoid conflict or uncomfortable conversations like the plague. They are recovering people pleasers. They struggle to set their own boundaries. They become increasingly resentful in relationships. And they can't handle when someone they love is struggling to the point where they feel like they need to fix it on behalf of that loved one. They can't handle when someone thinks poorly of them or has judgments of them. They get fixated on wanting to convince justify or explain themselves or their actions to the people that they love because they are attached to others being okay with the choices that they've made. They spend more time thinking about what other people think of them or how other people are doing than they spend focusing on themselves. They struggle to tell the truth without justifying, explaining, or trying to convince or withhold elements of the truth or try to curate their choice of words so perfectly that they're more likely to get what they want from the other person or at the very least avoid upsetting or making the other person uncomfortable. AKA, very subtle forms of manipulation. And I want to make it very clear that this is not coming from a malicious place it's coming from a need to feel loved, acceptance, and approval. Does that sound familiar at all to anybody out there? If any of those sounded like you, you might be codependent. And some of that might be really surprising to you because it's not what most of us think of when we hear the word codependency. What most of us think of is this idea of two lovers in the early stages of a relationship who are just glued at the hip. Or we think about the family members or the people who love individuals who are in recovery or are addicts. In fact, that's where this word codependency first began. It was used to describe certain patterns of behavior that people were participating in when the members of their family or when their loved one was addicted to alcohol or drugs or sex or some other form of substance. But when you look at the actual definition of the word codependency, codependency is self-neglect at the expense of caretaking another person. 
But here's the kicker. That caretaking usually doesn't look like actual caretaking. Usually what it looks like is mitigating or trying to control this thing that I deem is a problem for somebody else. And most of the time, that problem that I'm trying to caretake for the other person has something to do with their perception of me. I'm trying to caretake or mold or manipulate this image of how they see me so that it's not problematic. Codependents are living in a fantasy world where they believe that they have this magical ability to mold or shift or manipulate the perception that others have of them, the way that others think about them. And at the end of the day, that's actually self-sabotage. Because what most of us really want in our interpersonal relationships, whether that's our romantic relationships, our family relationships, or our friendships, is to be seen and understood and loved and accepted for exactly who we are. But when we spend our time trying to manipulate the way that others see us, there's usually an element of withholding the truth that takes place that prevents others from actually being able to know us for who we are and love us for who we are in the first place. So there's this saying in the world of recovery that if addicts are addicted to alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever the substance of choice is, codependents are addicted to trying to control the addicts. Codependents are addicted to the addicts. And in its advanced stages, codependency is actually classified as a behavioral addiction. In its subtle form, it's something that most people participate in to a certain extent, or at least most of the people that I meet are participating in to a certain extent. In a paper called Codependency and Pathological Altruism, codependency is defined as an inability to tolerate a perceived negative affect, that's scientific word for emotional experience, in others that leads to a dysfunctional empathic response. And I'll say that one more time. Codependency is an inability to tolerate a perceived negative affect in others that leads to a dysfunctional empathic response. Codependency likely shares its roots with pathological altruism. It's this self-perceived altruistic behavior of one person that enables another person's highly dysfunctional behavior. And when you hear it phrased like that, I think it sounds pretty extreme. So what I want to draw your attention to is that it's a spectrum. Codependency can be buying cigarettes for your mother who's addicted to them because it's too painful for you or too uncomfortable for you to be with her discomfort going through withdrawal. Or it could be buying cigarettes for your mother who's addicted to them because you can't handle being with the anger, the resentment, the discomfort that it builds when you say no to her and hold a boundary. But codependency can also be staying in a relationship way past its expiration date 
because you are more addicted to trying to convince the other person to treat you better than you are committed to taking care of yourself via not tolerating disrespectful or toxic behavior from your partner in the first place. Codependency can look like constantly trying to soothe the people that are around you rather than letting them assume personal responsibility for their own emotional experiences in the first place. So that being said, let's start to move through some of the defining characteristics of codependency. The first one, which we've already talked about a little bit, is caretaking. And again, this doesn't even need to actually be caretaking. This can be imaginary caretaking, stemming from your discomfort being with someone else's discomfort. You see them in pain, you assume responsibility for their emotions, you try to fix them, you try to soothe them. And oftentimes, this is at the expense of truly being able to take care of yourself. And I want to pause here and just acknowledge something which is that earlier I mentioned codependency has this element of self-perceived altruism to it, right? When we're constantly giving to someone else, when we're constantly taking care of someone else, when we're constantly trying to help someone else, it feels like we're doing something that's very altruistic. In the case of codependency, there are actually... I think this is going to be hard for quite a few of you to hear. They're actually really selfish motivations, which is that we can't be with the discomfort of watching someone else be in pain, with watching someone else take responsibility for their own actions, choices, and behaviors. Because we can't be with our own discomfort, we immerse ourselves in trying to take care of somebody else's. So a lot of what I hear when I'm starting to work with somebody who is identifying codependent patterns of behavior in themselves is like, but isn't this selfish? Isn't taking care of myself in this way really selfish? Isn't it cruel? Isn't it unkind to not help this person in need? To which we can go back to the example of buying cigarettes for your mother, right? That is enabling behavior. It's not actually helping somebody who is in need. It's putting a Band-Aid over the surface level discomfort that you have because it's really challenging for you to say no. You don't like feeling like she's angry at you because you've said no to her. And so therefore, you helping her is... It's you avoiding being with your own discomfort. So caretaking, but not actually caretaking. It's usually more like enabling behavior, and it's usually not helpful at the end of the day. It's easy to use the cigarette example in the context of addiction, but this is something that you can see in any sort of emotional pattern of behavior in terms of codependence and the people that they are caretaking. Or we can use a less extreme example. Let's say, hypothetically, you have an adult child who constantly needs you to financially float them, who constantly needs you to financially support them. 
and you have just been giving them money, giving them money, helping them pay for their bills, helping them pay for gas for their car, that pattern of behavior, while coming from at the surface, a place of love of like, well, of course I'm going to help them. Of course I'm going to take care of them. It actually comes from your own discomfort because it's painful for you to see your adult child dealing with the consequences of their own choices and decisions that have led them to be in a place of financial instability. That is enabling behavior as well. It's enabling them to not take personal responsibility for their own financial situation. And you continuously giving them money is not actually helping them make the kind of changes that they need to make in order to be someone, in order to be an adult who is self-sufficient. Or we can use an example that's a little more subtle and a little more emotional in context. If I was going home for the holidays, like so many of us are, I'm not actually for the record, I'm staying here in Bali, but if I were to go home for the holidays and let's say hypothetically I had a new boyfriend that I wanted to bring home and my dad, this is a real life example, my dad has a history of not liking my boyfriends, even when they've been amazing men, no one has ever been good enough. So previously, what my codependency might have looked like in this situation was intentionally withholding certain truths about my boyfriend or certain realities about who he is, what he does, blah, 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 our relationship in an effort to try to manipulate the situation in such a way that my dad is more likely to like him or approve him or going into trying to convince, justify, and explain to my dad all of these amazing qualities and attributes that my boyfriend has so that my dad is more likely to like and approve of my boyfriend. Where that's problematic is that I don't actually have control over what my dad thinks anyway. And by me trying to control, even though it's an illusion, even though it's a fantasy, even though I don't actually have the power to do this, me trying to control my dad's emotional experience, I'm denying myself the opportunity to self-regulate in my discomfort by trying to avoid it entirely. So those are some examples of caretaking. Another one of the defining characteristics of codependency is repression of feelings. You might be suppressing and repressing your emotions in favor of focusing on the emotions of the people that you are trying to caretake. And one of the ways that that can come out is that codependents often will not express or tell the truth about what their emotions are because they don't want to upset or anger the people that they're in relationship with. And they definitely don't want the people that they're in relationship with to be mad or angry or upset at them. Because of this, one of the other defining characteristics of codependency is an inability to set boundaries or having really weak or flimsy boundaries. 
Codependents are typically the people who will violate their own boundaries. So, for example, if there is a standard for treatment that you are and are not willing to accept in a relationship, like, for example, I am unwilling to tolerate somebody who's going to swear at me, somebody who's going to call me names, somebody who's going to curse at me and raise their voice. That is a hard boundary that I have. Back when I was in my active codependency, that was a boundary that was very flimsy, especially when those types of violations were coming from somebody that I really, really loved. And having that weak boundary, having that flimsy boundary led to anger and resentment. But because codependents are typically focusing their attention on the other person, the anger, the resentment is also geared towards the other person. We blame the other people because our focus is still external. But the tough truth pill to swallow here is that most of the time when you're functioning codependently, you are the person who violated your own boundaries first. You are the one that was willing to accept behavior that you previously deemed as being unacceptable. What this also leads to is a lack of trust in others. Because why would you trust in others that are going to continuously hurt you? And a lack of trust in yourself. Because at the end of the day, you are the one that's been violating your own boundaries and not upholding them. Codependency also usually looks like obsessing over another person, how they're doing, what they're thinking, psychoanalyzing them, trying to figure out why they're doing what they're doing and why they've made the decisions that they've made. In fact, there's this saying in the world of recovering codependency that when you ask a codependent how they're doing, they will often tell you how everyone else in their life is doing. They'll never actually answer from their own experience. Codependents often really struggle with communicating, and this is in part because they suppress and repress their emotions. They really struggle to express what's actually going on for them. Because if they were to say, if I were to say, I'm really angry that you said that, or it really hurt me that you did this, or that you said this, or I'm feeling really insecure right now, I'm feeling really afraid right now that I'm going to lose you, then telling the truth about my own emotional experience might hypothetically evoke an emotional experience in someone else that could lead them to be mad, upset, or angry at me. Codependence will avoid that at all costs. God forbid the people in our lives are upset at us. So instead, what they'll do is circumnavigate the truth. They will choose their words so intentionally and specifically that it borders on manipulation because we believe that we're more likely to get what we want through choosing our words so perfectly that telling the truth or being honest about how we feel it's more likely to hurt us than it is to actually help us. And again, this doesn't come from 
an evil or a malicious place, what it actually comes from, which the last defining characteristic of codependency is fear and low self-esteem. When we believe that we need to convince or justify or explain or manipulate others into loving us or choosing us or accepting us, we will act in very codependent ways. If we truly believed that we were lovable, that we were acceptable as we are, we wouldn't be acting in these ways. So final defining characteristic of codependency is low self-esteem. So knowing all of that, you might be able to identify in yourself that you are a little more codependent than you originally anticipated. And what I want to share here is that it's super, super normal. All of us, I believe, I am of the belief that all of us participate in these patterns of thinking or behavior to certain extents. Because I don't believe that there's a single human being out there that has perfect self-esteem that doesn't see fallibility in themselves from time to time. It's part of what makes us human. So knowing all of that, let's talk about where this is happening in the brain. To do that, we need to first talk about this concept in the world of neuropsychology called theory of mind. Theory of mind basically refers to your ability to differentiate between the mental states of yourself and others, including emotions, thoughts, and perceptions. There are two key regions of the brain that are associated with theory of mind, and they are your mirror neuron system and your interoceptive system. There's a third region of the brain called the prefrontal cortex that we're going to talk about today that plays a very specific role in understanding codependency. So let's break down those three regions. The first I mentioned was the mirror neuron system. Your mirror neuron system essentially has two functions. The first is empathy or connection. The second is deception perception. In other words, this is the part of your brain that allows you to detect when someone else is lying. And it works within the motor system of your brain. Your mirror neurons are these nerve cells, these neurons within your brain that are basically responsible for witnessing what's happening in another person and then emulating that in yourself. So it's looking at the way that someone is sitting or standing, their posture, whether or not their arms are crossed in front of them or their hands are on their hips, and also their facial micro-expressions and the nuances in the way that their face is conveying emotion. When we see the emotion that someone else is conveying, like for example, if someone's telling us a really serious, sad story and you can see their eyebrows furrowing, your mirror neuron system is the thing that will ultimately lead you to be furrowing your eyes and nodding your head along with them. This is how we experience empathy, through witnessing the motor movements in another person and then emulating them, doing them ourselves. So this is what gives us the ability to feel what another person is feeling. 
This is also the thing that gives us the ability to detect when another person is lying. When we can see their facial expressions, see all of these micro movements, and we're doing them ourselves. And as we're doing them, this is all happening, I should say, on an unconscious level as well. We're emulating their facial movements, their micro expressions, their body language. But we're hearing a discrepancy in terms of how they're expressing and their tone of voice or the content of the story that they're telling. We can feel for ourselves when there is truth to the emotion that we're putting on, that we're emulating in response to what we're seeing in them and what they're saying or what they're doing or what they're telling us. So in codependency, typically codependent people have an overactive mirror neuron system. They're highly, highly empathic and empathetic. They can really, really feel the extent of what other people are feeling. The second system that I mentioned earlier was your brain's interoceptive system. Interoception refers to your ability to identify what's happening within your own body, the sensations, the emotions, the physical experiences that are happening inside of you. The region of the brain that is responsible for this is called the insula. And typically, this region is underactive in codependence. So mirror neuron system, overactive, interoceptive system, underactive. And this just goes back to the saying that I mentioned earlier, that if you ask a codependent how they're doing, they'll tell you how everyone else is first. There's a disconnect in codependent people in terms of their own physical experience. They're really lacking in their relationship with themselves. The third part of the brain that's responsible in codependency is the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is, as you might have heard on this podcast previously, the crowning jewel of humanity. It's the thing that differentiates us from everything else that we evolved from, including monkeys. And the prefrontal cortex, one of its main jobs is inhibiting impulsive behavior. And as we talked about earlier, codependency is an addictive behavior. It's a behavioral addiction. It's an addiction to trying to control, fix, mitigate the emotional experience or physical experience of somebody else. So when we are in active codependent behaviors, our prefrontal cortex is not working as strongly as it could be to inhibit the caretaking. And so knowing all of that, knowing where all of this is happening in the brain, there are a few things that we can do to move from codependency to interdependency. And I say interdependency because the opposite of codependency isn't independence. We actually don't want to be moving to independence because we are highly social creatures. We really, really need each other. We need socialization. We need connection biologically in order to be okay. The opposite of codependency is interdependency. It's being able to be in community, to be in connection, to be in relationship with others without losing ourselves, without neglecting ourselves. 
it's being able to be giving and loving and in connection without losing our autonomy and sovereignty. So let's talk about a few ways that we can start to do that, a few ways we can start to build interdependence. The first is actually by growing our level of interoception. So by focusing on establishing a stronger relationship with yourself, your own body, your own emotional experience. It's connecting to what is happening in here inside of you. And there are a few things that you can do that foster a little bit more of that. The first few I don't think are going to be shockers to any of you, but it's meditation. It's breath work. It's yoga, right? All of these practices that help us get back into sensing and perceiving what is happening within the container of our own bodies. Yoga nidra is also a fantastic way to start to do this because the first 20 minutes of a yoga nidra practice are a body scan. It's helping you reconnect to the sensations in almost every single part of your body. And I think this is probably a good moment to pause and to say that if yoga nidra is a practice that you've been wanting to learn more about, or if you've been wanting to become a facilitator of it, I have an online yoga nidra teacher training, so facilitator training, that begins on January 17th. This training is for anybody who's wanting to learn more about the practice selfishly so that they can have a deeper relationship with themselves and learn how to deeply rewire their own subconscious and unconscious mind, or for anybody who's interested in actually sharing this practice with others. If Yoga Nidra is a new word for you, if you've never heard it before, it's a type of guided meditation that's done laying down that works very similarly to hypnosis or hypnotherapy. If you want to learn more about the practice, you can go to episode 12 of Talk Nerdy to Me, where I interview my original Yoga Nidra mentor, Mona Anand, on all things neuroscience, yoga nidra, and non-sleep deep relaxation. You can also head over to my website, alexnashton.com slash nidra training to learn more, and I'll include links to all of those things in the show notes. The last way that you can start to build a little more interoception is by building what is known as proprioception. Proprioception refers to your experience of where your body exists in space and how your body moves in space. And you can do that through physical movement where you're really embodied, where your mind is really in your body for things like exercising, yoga, dancing, and also massage, right? Coming back to where your body exists in space. There's an amazing type of meditation practice that I love called nervous system orientation or nervous system orientation practices. All of those are really great ways that you can begin to build proprioception and subsequently interoception and move you further away from codependency. The second way that you can start to move from codependence to interdependence is to start taking care of the only person that you can actually take care of, the only person who you actually have control over, which is yourself. You can start to be in the active practice of getting comfortable in your discomfort. Practice letting other people take responsibility for their own lives and their own emotional experiences. What this means is no more enabling behavior, 
No more trying to regulate someone else's emotions on their behalf. Give the other people in your life permission to take care of themselves because that's ultimately what they're going to be doing anyway. The third way that you can start to move from codependency to interdependency is by getting really comfortable with the idea that people may not like you and may not like what you have to say. This includes setting boundaries, namely boundaries that other people may not necessarily like. One of the things that I see in my clients who are beginning this practice of setting boundaries for the first time is that they set the boundary and then they're really attached to convincing the other person to like that boundary. And it doesn't necessarily work that way, even when everyone in the dynamic benefits ultimately from the boundary that's being set. Anytime we disrupt a dynamic, it's usually going to feel a little bit worse before it feels better. Anytime we disrupt a dynamic, the other people that are involved, even if they benefit from the disruption, are usually not going to like that dynamic being disrupted in the first place. So part of moving from codependency to interdependence is setting your boundaries and being okay with the other people not liking them, but upholding and reinforcing those boundaries anyway. Give the other people in your life permission not to like the emotions that you are expressing or the things that you're sharing with them, or the truth that you are telling them about how you feel and what you want. At the end of the day, they're going to find out anyway, one way or another. And by withholding what you want, by not telling the truth, by not expressing yourself, you're not giving yourself the opportunity to be seen, acknowledged, understood, and accepted, and loved for who you really are. The fourth way that you can start to move from codependency to interdependence is by reclaiming your mind. So anytime you find yourself slipping into obsession, slipping into rumination, psychoanalyzing, trying to mentally problem solve a problem that may be real for another person or a problem that you might have made up for another person, it's a really good time to pump the brakes to slow down and get really, really present again. Disrupt that pattern of thinking. If you want to learn more about how you can disrupt those types of anxious patterns, I highly recommend that you listen to the episode on the anatomy of fear, the amygdala, autonomic nervous system, and overcoming anxiety. There are a lot of really practical tools and tips that I give in that episode on how to disrupt rumination and obsessive patterns of thinking. And if you've been listening to this episode and you've been thinking to yourself, oh shit, this is totally me and I really need some support in this, there is a link in the show notes where you can apply for a one-on-one -on -one complimentary coaching conversation with me to see if we are a good fit to work together in a longer-term capacity. And I say longer-term capacity because I am of the belief that these patterns are deeply rooted and it's not something that can be fixed with a magic pill. It's not something that can be fixed in just one 90-minute conversation. But if you're wanting to get some ideas for where you can possibly begin on this journey of rewiring your codependent relational patterns, head to the link in my show notes. You can fill out that application 
If I don't have any availability in my current roster of clients, I will put you on the wait list for when I do open some space up again. On that note, I am wishing you a very happy holiday, everybody. May your days be nerdy and bright. And before you go, just one quick super nerdy announcement, which is that my annual Neuroscience of Manifestation Masterclass is happening online Friday, January 12th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is my signature workshop that I've led every single year for the last five years, and it's only $22. If you want to learn more or save your spot, head to the link in the show notes and you can learn more there. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.